It is a good initiative. The whole country is happy about that. And then right now it is 90% completed. So once that is done, maybe 80% of the community will receive power supply. Chinese companies are the best at developing hydropower in the world. Hydropower is completely renewable. That gives energy independence for developing nations so that they don't have to rely on imports from other nations to continue growing their economy. The Bell and Road Initiative invested 3 trillion euros, and this is exactly the amount of money that the U.S. invested in invading Iraq and Afghanistan. The same trillions could have been invested by the U.S. in Latin America to build roads and all the things that they are criticizing China for doing. The Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. Chat Lounge. The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way. Welcome to Media Chat. I'm Ya Wen. Today we're going to talk about China's Belt and Road Initiative. This month marks the 10th anniversary of the BRI, and over the past decade, more than 150 countries and 30 international organizations have joined in the initiative. This collaboration has spurred investment of 1 trillion US dollars, established over 3,000 cooperation projects, and created 420,000 local jobs, as well as helped lift almost 40 million people out of poverty around the world. Today, we will delve into more details of BRI's achievements over the past 10 years, address some concerns and misunderstanding, as well as looking to prospect of the initiative. Today, we have three special guests. We start with Maria Sawazi. She's a journalist, commentator from Chile. Hi. Hello, everyone. I'm very happy to be here and very excited about the hot topic we're about to discuss. Also, we have Janki. Tore, she's a journalist from Gambia. Thank you, and it's good to be here. And also we have Jason Smith. Jason is from America. He's the host of the Bridge podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to talk about the BRI. Before we actually delve into the BRI, I'd like to ask one quick question. Have you guys heard about there's an old saying in China, Lu? It pretty much means if you want to get rich, you want to build roads first. You know, my wife told me about this. Last year, we went to a little town associated with a mountain called Wudong Mountain, Wudong Shan. And I, we, it was this very small town. But when we got out of the train, the road looked brand new, like, you know, a big city road. And I asked her about that. And she told me about this. And since she mentioned it a year ago, it just keeps coming up in other conversations with other people, where other people just randomly tell me, oh, Jason, do you know about this phrase about first build a road and then wealth come? So yeah, it seems to be a very popular idea. I have a connection with a similar saying. Now that Jason commented on Budan Shang, I wanted to tell this short story because I came to China to go to a Tai Chi retreat in Budanshan. Mm-hmm. And this never happened because I got this, uh, we got this cooperation program. And I'm, I'm reporting about all these topics I have been written in the last years, especially as a sinologist. And at the time, this whole thing got canceled. And I was already in China. I could not leave to Budanshan. And I needed to move to Beijing. I was in Shanghai. My husband has booked uh, holidays in South Taiwan. So a lot of things needed to be rearranged. Mm-hmm. And the Tai Chi um, Shifu from Budang Shang, he said, if a car is driving, there's going to be a road. Mm-hmm. 
So I think that this road expression, it has a also very metaphysical deep sense for China. It's not just about building the materiality of the road, but about finding ways to make things happen. The reason why I brought up this Chinese saying is because about 40, 50 years ago, back in 1978, at least half of China's village does not have roads. But uh, that number has increased about six times within 40 years. Also, if you look at the graphic, you can see how China's GDP and economic development rise along with how the infrastructure or how the roads, um, bridges have been built along with um, the economic development. That actually leads to my next question, especially for Jason, you've been here more than 10 years now. Do you know the philosophy or the cultural meanings behind this saying? People believe this is the way to... Uh, develop the countries and achieve prosperity? Well, in the contemporary setting now, it's so that goods can flow. So that you can, so one of the things that they've done for poverty alleviation, which that largely ended in 2020 and became modern prosperity, is building roads, building infrastructure, so that people can move their goods to markets. That's part of the high-speed rail as well. So that there's an uh, increase in logistic ability to move things around the country. Going into some of these small, impoverished communities, a lot of local leadership and national leadership taught people how to use their telecommunications device. Use your cell phone to find the best market nationally or even internationally to sell your local products. You can't do that if you don't have a road. You have orders or you have all these business opportunities, but you're deep in the rural areas mm-hmm. and do not have access to make that happen. Mm-hmm. What I have found about this old saying is in Chinese culture, building bridges and roads is considered an act of accumulating good karma. For example, in some rural areas of China, if there is a senior person and he's been living over 100 years old and his children maybe want to build a road for the village to kind of give back to the community and uh, to cherish longevity of the senior person at home. So that's the concept deeply rooted in the Chinese culture. Is there any similar saying to describe this kind of thing? Like, if you want to get rich, you want to do certain things in your country, in your culture. I think in the United States, there's the idea that it takes money to make money. So there's an idea that people with money are mm-hmm. more able to make money. So it's a totally different kind of... So I can't think of something where you do some bi- infrastructure building and th- there's a phrase associated with it. I think it's more unique to China. As far as I'm concerned, maybe it exists in other cultures. I think that the question is what is world? Because I think that in this Chinese saying, world is not purely referred to money, obviously. If it's uh, think on the terms of giving back to the community, in that sense, the way in which we were building road before colonization, obviously, because then the whole... Uh, mindset change, it was about building connections to the skies. And I think that this maybe might be relatable to Chinese culture, because all the roads are connected to the ways of the stars. They have all these marks also for agricultural purposes, for ceremonies. So roads are not just for humans. They also represent our vision about the world, where the humans are located, where nature is located. In that sense, in the modern world, everything gets reduced to a very particular aspect. But even in this modern context, all these roads mean more than just transportation of food. China also puts a lot of effort to the exchange of people, cultural exchange. So even in this context where everything gets reduced to the very minimum, they still have this deeper meaning. 
actually infrastructure development is only part of the BRI, but it's most well known around the world. Is there any infrastructure projects or other、uh, cooperation projects involved Chinese enterprises under the BRI framework? So within the framework, there is this very interesting project. Actually, I just published last week about this because Chile, you might know, it has a very particular geography. It's very long. It's very thin, and due to many different factors, we don't have a train line. Which means transportation of food is very difficult. So I'm very happy about this because the first functional train line, which is going to be built, it's by a Chinese enterprise. In a cooperation, they want the concourse. We have a public concourse for this. They want it. There are a lot of environmental regulations which were asked. So they are meeting all these standards. They also co-finance a lot of social projects. And I think that this is very nice, but at the moment, infrastructure is not the most important part of the cooperation. But Chile is more focusing on the co-investment of technology, of digital infrastructure. There are big projects related to infrastructure coming soon, but Chile just signed on 2018, so it's very early for it's only five years. Exactly, there are more to come.、Yeah. How about Yankee in your country? I know a Chinese company has been involved in helping Gambia to build its electricity facility. Would you share with us more about it? Yeah,、um, that happened、uh, two years back.、Uh, the true.、Um TBEA company, the Gambia government、uh, contracted them、uh, to、um, construct or rehabilitate our electricity project.、Uh, I think、um, the whole world knows when it,、um, the Gambia, when it comes to、uh, <laughs> electricity issue,、um, it is something that we upload. The project supposed to be、uh, commissioned next month, and then right now it is ninety percent、um, done、uh, or completed. So once that is done, maybe eighty percent of the community will receive power supply. It is something that we we, we seriously cried for because、um, any time you are on your work or you are doing something, there will be like power outages and so on. So people try to blame the government, and so but I know they are also trying. So TBEA are、uh, chipping in to assist the Gambia. It's 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 a welcoming initiative through the BRI. Is that the collaborative efforts the Chinese company comes in, but also there will be Gambia companies to cooperate with the Chinese entity. To do it together. Yes, the project is、uh, actually funded by the World Bank, but、um, the contract has been given to TBEA, and then they are currently on the site、um, doing、um, remarkable work.、Um, yeah, and then it's supposed to be commissioned、uh, next month. As you mentioned this project was funded by the World Bank. How did the Chinese company get the opportunity to work on this project? Formerly,、uh, the former president、uh, of the Gambia cut our ties with China. The current president, that is、um, uh, President Adam Abero, see the the need to involve China into our our relations or into our affairs and then the like, and then see their importance to the Gambia because China is the first country that、um, since independence that、um, continue to give aid to the Gambia, be it scholarships, agriculture, and then the like. So、um, when he came into power, his first opportunity or the first stance or initiative that he took is to cement our. Relationship、mm-hmm. and then like so、um, from there, any opportunity that comes, he always、um, involved China, and then that is how、um, TBEA、uh, was contracted to to to、um, 
restored our electricity. It is a good initiative. The whole country is happy about that because mm-hmm. we've been given similar opportunities to other con- uh, companies and so on, but the outcomes is always dissatisfying. So that is why when we see the work, and so I personally visited the site with the officials from the National Water and Electricity Company, and then I spoke to them, but honestly speaking, all of them are um, impressed about the work that DBEA company is doing. And hopefully this will not be the last. Is there a local employment for people, Gambians as well, in the construction of the facilities? Yeah. I'm going to ask that question (laughs) as well. I saw a report made by McKenzie. Uh, They released a report saying that uh, among the BRI projects in Africa, there are about 80 to 90 of the employees uh, were uh, recruit on site. So is that the case? Yes. Um, some of our youths, we are given the contracts. Uh, this is how they do it. TBEA will be overseeing the activities and so on, but uh, they bring in youths uh, to also engage themselves in the initiative. So they are not left behind. And then basically they are Gambian youth. So it means that uh, they, they as a the contractor, in other way around, are also teaching our Gambian youths on how to do the work and so on. So it is like Skills transfer. Yeah. yeah. Talent training on mm-hmm. site. Yeah. In the long run, once they are also qualified in this, I mean, they can also set their own uh, companies and then contracts will be given to them and so on. I want to come to you, Jason. So based on your knowledge, you're from America and uh, I, I have heard that there is no, uh, so far, no cooperation between China and America and under the BRI. However, is there any specific stories about BRI that impress you the most? I research a different BRI project every single day. And what I have found is that there are a lot of increasing renewable projects, renewable energy projects. There are solar farms, but there's also hydro. And what I find really interesting about hydropower is number one, Chinese companies are the best at developing hydropower in the world. If you look at Three Gorges Dams, we can tell why. And that's very recent. So there's a lot of knowledge in companies like Gajoba, for example. So I was looking at a hydropower project today In Ethiopia, it's 264 megawatt, uh, opened in 2019-2020. It was for a loan for about half a billion dollars. But what's really interesting about the loan is that it's very concessional. It's about 2.5% seven-year grace period with 20 years to pay back, which is extremely affordable. And, And the thing that really impresses me about the use of hydropower to help Ethiopia uh, electrify the, 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 the landscape, is that hydropower is not just providing electricity. It also regulates water flow. So then the government and the company can tell farmers, this is when we're going to plan on releasing water. Instead of there just being floods and water just comes whenever nature allows it to come. Now they can say, these are the kinds of things that you might want to consider planting this season in these parts of the year. And so yields are going to increase. And this has already happened in other countries where China has invested in hydropower. In addition, hydropower is completely renewable. And you don't need to import coal or oil to facilitate the use of that power facility. Yes, under the BRI, there have been you know, fossil fuel uh, emitting facilities in the past, but largely there's a move towards hydro, towards solar, and towards wind. And that gives energy independence for developing nations so that they don't have to rely on imports from other nations to continue growing their economy.
actually recently the Chinese government issued this white paper about the BRI. They mentioned this about the green BRI is that China will no longer establish the power facility driven by burning fossil fuels. So I think that's a very important signal to show that China is not only trying to achieve its carbon neutrality goal at home domestically, but overseas through BRI cooperation, they're doing it along the BRI road. I just would like briefly to comment on that because we have all this very strong criticism about this project, but we forget many points uh, in between. For instance, in the case of TILA, we have a transparency law. This is a very modern jurisdiction solution that Chile implemented years ago. So every project that comes to the country needs to be fully published. There is no way for a project to be executed without going through the open application process. And in the case of Chile, it's very exemplary because it was one of the first countries that joined. And the support has been transversal from all the different political parties. So it was uh, Chile still engaged with China at the time of the dictatorship, at the time of the right-wing uh, party came to power at the time of the leftists uh, came to power. It has been very trans- transversal because the cooperation is very solid, beneficial for both countries. But in, in this specific set of projects and in the last 10 years, China has been the only major actor who has invested in green energies. And this is a very important point for Latin American development, which has a very, very serious problem for energy supplies not just because the warming change has worsened the situation, because we are not energetic self-sufficient. We have never had any form of cooperation who have let us develop our own energy supplies. So this is supporting cooperations in Argentina for nuclear power, for green energy, the same in Brazil. In Chile, it's not yet set, but it's going to come the green hydrogen, which is even one step further. So this whole criticism forgets that it's not just meeting the needs, of most of the world, but it's also insurance that they have autonomy in very important areas for the development, infrastructure, energy supply, and so on and so forth. When we're talking about infrastructure development, I'd like to point it out, the funding is also very important. How do you see the role that uh, in the past that China has played to make these things happen? How do you view the whole debt trap diplomacy accusation from the West? China has never seized a single project in the world that it has worked on. And actually, China has forgiven billions and billions of dollars. For the people who don't believe, you can go to John Hopkins' website, SIAS, where Deborah Brodigam has brought this up. She wrote an article in The Atlantic talking about Sri Lanka. What makes China a great partner for the rest of the world is China has the largest forex foreign reserves of currency in the world. Mm-hmm. And it's looking for ways to invest that. So it used to buy U.S. treasuries. But there, China increasingly saw there is a need in the underdeveloped world for the kinds of infrastructure that Chinese companies are, have become very good at building at home. So China is exporting those uh, companies and a lot of that finance. So Exim Bank makes a lot of loans at 0%. Or 2% and actually takes a little bit of a loss in investing in some of those projects because they could actually make more money by investing in U.S. treasuries. So there's no real debt trap if China's losing money in the financing of some of the projects. Furthermore, if you look around 
Most of the BRI member countries, Chinese development aid has actually built free schools, free hospitals, all over the place, free bridges, China friendship bridges all over the place. So China is actually, yes, is it engaged in diplomacy? Sure. All countries are engaged in diplomacy and they do want other countries to like them. So does China hope that if it builds a school for free for a country that that country then says, yes, I like China? Of course it does. But it's doing it in the most positive way that I could possibly think of doing that. Furthermore, if you look at Sri Lanka's debt, it's roughly 5% of that that's owed to China. The other 95% are owed to institutions like the World Bank, IMF, Club of Rome. China actually did develop real meaningful infrastructure in Sri Lanka that is still there to this day. And a lot of that was actually free. China built free things in Sri Lanka as well. There was a waterborne clinic that they spent 150 million US dollars on building a clinic that can not only help people with dialysis, but also look for ways to purify and clean the water for local communities. Mm -hmm. So China leaves a trail of infrastructure behind when it's investing in a place. Now, oftentimes, the World Bank has had, what, 60, 70 years to try to help the underdeveloped world. But the outcome was countries, in some cases, actually became poorer than they were before. But China's coming in and they're building projects and now they have the requisite infrastructure to become more autonomous, more independent and grow their economies. Mm -hmm. So when people say debt trap diplomacy to me, I think that's kind of laughable and I think more of some Western institutions. That's a good point. Actually, I do spoke to Sri Lanka ambassador to China last year, and he told me the same thing. He said about 9% of foreign debt owned by Chinese government, but the rest belongs to like World Bank, the IMF, Japan, and also other investors from the open market. I think that Sri Lanka is actually the best possible example about what does it mean for poorer countries, underdeveloped countries to cooperate with these traditional international institutions? Because in the case of Sri Lanka, a very fertile country with a lot of farmers, a lot of knowledge and self-sufficient agriculture, the international monetary funds force them to shift towards wheat, but for the export, to leave their own little farms for self-sufficiency. And you have a country which cannot feed their populations anymore because they needed to reform the whole agricultural structure of the country. But this is not mentioned in the Western media. Million people going undernourished, no possibility to change the structure of the soil in the next years, but there is no mention to this. So I, for me, it's very interesting because I'm based in Vienna in Europe. This is the whole narrative I hear every day in the news. But at the same time, I come from the the so-called global south. But there is no mention to the interests of the global south represented by themselves in this whole debate. So the International Monetary Fund, European Union, the US is telling that this is a debt trap for these countries. But you have most of Latin American countries, most of Caribbean countries desperately wanting to join BRICS, desperately wanting to join this initiative. CELA claimed that it was in their own strategic interest to join these initiatives. Although at the time, it was still a very influenced U.S. institution. So why is this whole dichotomy uh, happening? Why most of the countries in the global south want to cooperate with China, but the Western world, which is actually uh, also a good question, what's the Western world? Because we cannot just give the agency to the U.S. and the European Union to talk 
for Latin America, for Africa, even for India. So they must talk to themselves. And for most of these countries, they have declared themselves that is in their strategic interest to cooperate with China. Mm. And these projects are beneficial to them. And we should stop this whole infantilization of these countries because none of them uh, cannot decide for themselves. Most of these countries have very functional governments. They have a lot of capable people in power. They have their own experience and they know the best what's functioning for them. And within this frame, most of these countries have seen developments that did just not happen in 400 years of colonization, in 70 years of sole reign of the U.S. in the whole Latin American continent. There are no such projects. So there is a reason for these countries to want to shift their cooperation projects because there was no cooperation in the past. There was just this logic of extractivism. Chile has, as I said, no train lines, a country that was cooperating very willingly with the United States and with Europe, but there was no investment for infrastructure. The Belt and Road Forum is happening and it will cover a lot of, it kind of give the summary of what had achieved over the past 10 years and uh, the future prospect of this initiative. So Maria, what's your focus of the BRI Forum this year? I'm more focused on the impact it has in terms of the restructuration of the global order, but to connect it with the green transition, Germany, which is the leading country politically in the European Union, likes to point fingers when it comes to renewables and they, there is no acknowledgement about the Chinese success for, for the whole green transition. But Germany actually polluted 48 times more than China. So I think that this is a very good proportion because um, proportionally wise, China, of course, is much bigger but every German household has a car. They have uh, heating, not just for the coldest month, but most of the years, air condition. Houses are proportionally bigger than in China. So I think that this is a very good example of how the Western narrative works. There is no acknowledgement for the achievements of China, for the contributions. But this is something that it doesn't go so unseen in the global south. And this is my perspective for what's happening. It was very similar um, with the situation of BRICS. Because BRICS actually does not claim that much of importance themselves, but it was so important for the European Union, for the US, what's happening. Why is there is this uh, excitement about BRICS? Because it means some hope for these countries, which know that to get a loan from the International Monetary Fund, the best case of this is Argentina, means poverty or in the case in Sri Lanka, means hunger. So there is this whole hope, and there is also a new path. It's not a well-defined path. It's, it does have a different logic, because it's not a geopolitical alliance, even less a military alliance. But it's still, there is this new path, and there is the possibility to choose that we never had in the past. That's very important to note, that uh, the reason why countries like this year, there are over 150 countries and 30 international organizations participating already signals the importance of the summit. However, there are some developed countries, they so far have not joined the initiative. So does that mean there is little opportunity for them to join in? I feel that after there was a large political independence movement around the world in the 1960s and 70s and 1950s as well, that the World Bank and other institutions began maybe accidentally, maybe deliberately, replicating the same outcomes as existed under colonialism. So this is called neocolonialism. So essentially, 
Before the liberation movements, resources were drawn from the underdeveloped world, and they were processed in the first world, and then they were sold back to the underdeveloped world to continue to derive profit from them. And a lot of the institutions that went into countries, they force liberalized those economies, allowing FDI to flow in and money to flow out and their, their currencies to float against an international exchange, and they created essentially real debt traps. And in so doing, they were able to continue to take resources out. I feel that the Belt and Road Initiative is actually developing the local economies of the now developing world, and they are becoming less dependent on this, the West, which is the EU and uh, Great Britain and the United States, the former colonial powers, and possibly real, still colonial powers. So they, have, they don't have an interest in seeing these countries develop because they will no longer be able to use them for, for resource extraction mm -hmm. like they have been. So why would they want them to develop? I mean, I know that is not the most positive view, but that's my view. It resonates a lot with the position that the Global South has nowadays, but it goes even further. And I think that BRICS is a good example of this, because even for developed countries, for rich countries like Saudi Arabia, this world order is not working. Because even though they have accumulated some wealth, the institutions that were created are not functioning for them. The political institutions, the economic institutions, so they also feel in great disadvantage because they cannot decide by themselves, they have no autonomy on their own affairs, and this is a great reason to be disconform. Mm. And if you see that Saudi Arabia was eager to join BRICS, this is not an underdeveloped country. This is a country which has accumulated a world that most of the countries will never accumulate due to whatever circumstances, because they, they have the luck to have these uh, very wanted resources. But the U.S. promised them as well to have uh, some achievements that they were not able to deliver, like achieve peace in the Middle East. This week, we can see that this is something that they promise and they will not just not achieve now, but ever. The only way to achieve peace for Middle East is actually the U.S. to back up. This is the only option for Middle East to ever come to peace. And uh, that's why I say for the colonial structure, they are pretty much alive. This is something that the global south is acknowledging. They are trying to find other ways, but even for the developing world. Because if we see the European Union, it's not as homogeneous as it was before. There are big, big cracks within the European Union. There are big cracks within German politics, within Italy politics, within France politics. Because for most Europeans, the US politics that are forcing the, the European Union to engage in the war in Ukraine, the coupling or the risking, how the Germans want to call it, with China, are not benefiting the, benefiting the population. Europe is going through a massive economic recession, produced by these two political lines, pushing the politics every day into a more military dimension. And I wanted to come back to the first point, because you mentioned this initiative, the Bell and Road Initiative, invested 3 trillion euros and this is exactly the amount of money that the U.S. invested in invading Iraq and Afghanistan. Two unsuccessful wars, let's not even talk about the human cost, but a money that was burned into bombarding, into occupying a country which didn't want it to be occupied and without even achieving these goals. So the same tri trillions could have been invested by the U.S. in Latin America to build roads and all the things that they, they are criticizing China for doing, who nobody forbid them to do so, 
Nobody forced the U.S. to go to Iraq, to go to Afghanistan and burn all these three trillion euros. And there is no wonder that they feel the way they feel and they try to build all this antagonized narrative. Now with the, the Russia-Ukraine crisis as, as well as the ongoing conflict um, in the Middle East, also with the pandemic, even though it's finished, but the lagging influence, negative influence on the world economy still remains. So I think today the most important topic is how can we develop and recover our country's economy that remains very important. That's why I think the BRI plays a very important role in that because that provides an alternative opportunity and uh, is inclusive and also it welcomes countries that either they join the BRI or so far they have not. I just want to add one last thing. I'll try to keep it brief. I was living here for the last 10 years, and the uh, the goal to alleviate all poverty, all people in absolute poverty in China was still on, going on. And I saw the result of that, and I've seen China speed, where China just built so much stuff so fast. It wasn't any high-speed rail the first time I came to China, and now you have 42,000 kilometers of high-speed rail. If China's trying to take any amount of that and build it elsewhere, that's going to make people's lives better. That's going to make our world better. And that's going to raise more people out of poverty and create more common prosperity for people everywhere. And that's the kind of world I want to see. My final message will be a clarion call to the developing countries who are not yet a member of the BRI um, to quickly join for their own benefits. <laughs> yeah. I think that we already know what doesn't work. This institution, they didn't deliver what they promised. They just had the worst possible outcome and no achievements of any type of development, not economic, not infrastructure, not digital, not technological. So it's a time for the world to see new paths. And we are a time of five major crises. They are all complementing each other. The climate crisis, the energy crisis, the food crisis, the political crisis, the military crisis. So we need to find a new path. Like, like it or not, we are at a point of no return. And corporations or initiatives that foment cooperation cannot go unseen and cannot be put out of the table. We have no peace negotiations in Ukraine, no peace negotiations in Middle East. This is the dynamic that the Western world has supported for the last 70 years. And we cannot keep doing this because the planet is not going to hold it anymore. So I think that these initiatives need to be supported just because we have no other better options and the Western world is the one to blame. Thank you so much for your insightful opinions. That'll be it for our today's program. It's a pleasure having you being here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.